0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome, and thank you for joining us Uh, from around the world. We've got people from St. Louis and Harlem and Chicago, from Albuquerque, from Dallas, from the Bronx, from Melbourne. So uh, we are so pleased to have you here. My name is Maya Marshall. I am a manuscript editor at Haymarket Books and a poet and writer. I'm hosting today's conversation um, and book launch of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons of Our Own by Eddie S. Gloud Jr., published by Crown Books. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gloud and Dr. West. Eddie S. Gloud Jr.'s most well known books are Democracy and Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, and and a shade of blue, pragmatism, and the politics of Black America. He is the William S. Todd Professor of Religion and African American, oh, he's going to correct me in a second, African American Studies and the Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. If any of that has changed, you'll have to tell us. <laughs> Dr. West uh, is the Professor of the Practice of Public Philosophy at Harvard Divinity School. He is best known for his classics, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. He is the host with Tricia Rose of a new podcast, The Rope. They'll be discussing Dr. Gloud's important and beautifully written book, Begin Again, which was just released yesterday, to well-deserved sales. Please, please add yourselves to that number. This book, this book is absolutely um, beautiful. It's forcefully uh, hopeful in a moment where we need that. I'm going to read just a, a little bit of where this book gets its name from, and then um, we'll start with Why Baldwin Why Now. It begins, begin beginning again begins in a crucial and encouraging space. When the dream was slaughtered, and all that love and labor seemed to have come to nothing, we scattered. We knew where we had been, what we had tried to do, who had cracked, gone mad, died, or been murdered around us. Not everything is lost. Responsibility cannot be lost. It can only be abdicated. If one refuses abdication, one begins again. Um, welcome, Dr. Glad. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you, Maya. So happy to have you and so excited to jump in with this, this question. Why? Why Baldwin? and Why now? Well, you know, I mean, we saw, uh, first of all, just let me thank
2: everybody for making this possible. All the folks at Haymarket Press, folk at Labyrinth. I want to specifically thank Dr. West, who who has uh, been so important in my life, who has exhibited a kind of love that has enveloped me, that has made me possible. And so this is this is making my heart smile just to be with you in this moment. So uh, it's, it's exciting. I'm, I'm 51 years old and I'm still giddy, Doc. This is, this is hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, why Baldwin? Why now? You know, in some ways, we saw Baldwin emerge in the context of 2014, in some ways, and even before, as Black Lives Matter was beginning to give voice to its, its own desire for a more just America. They were reaching. Uh, for Jimmy's voice they were reaching for this queer black man who spoke a kind of truth uh, straight no chaser who carried with him and in his prose a kind of rage and love right who queered african-american politics who queered american politics who offered right a different kind of understanding of what it meant to reach for a different way of being in the world but i wanted to um turn to baldwin because I was trying to grapple with my own despair and disillusionment in this moment. So after the, the extraordinary uh, uh, moment of 2008 and the election of Barack Obama, and then we saw for eight years what that meant. And then we witnessed police murdering uh, our brothers and sisters. And we saw these young folk uh, in the streets risking life and limb. And then what do we see in response? Voter ID laws, voter suppression, and in the country vomited up Donald Trump. And so this was a moment of betrayal, of profound betrayal. The country had did it again. And so what I wanted to do was to return to Jimmy, who had been invoked so much in this moment, to figure out how he dealt with his moment of betrayal when mm. the country turned its back then. How did he pick up the pieces and what resources were available to us now? Um, You know, because he is in he is, to my mind, one of the most insightful critics of American democracy that we've ever produced. Um, And so it makes sense for me. uh, It made sense for me to reach to reach for him in this
1: moment. That makes perfect sense to me. Thank you for um, for situating us and what, and what this book is, which is part biography, part history, part um, historical grounding of this moment in the, the disappointment that followed the civil rights movement. Um, and you've pointed again to the notion of hope and this practice of constant rebuilding. I wonder if uh, each of you could take a moment to speak to the practice of hope and witness now um, and our responsibility to care for the witness right we've seen some pretty nasty things happen to witnesses like ramsey orta or um frazier who witnessed uh, the murder of george ford for us and shared that information how do we practice hope in the midst of the responsibility of witnessing how do we take care of our witnesses
2: i would love to hear what you think doc oh Lord, Lord. Of
3: course, I want to thank Sister Myers just for uh, her work there at Haymarket and the, the running of the poetry section and the manuscript section in general. They're blessed to have you, my dear sister.
1: Thank you, good sir. Thank you.
3: Oh, indeed. And this brother right here, though, Lord have mercy. Just looking in his eyes and remembering 30 years ago, Mm-hmm. I was thoroughly convinced that next sitting next to my dear brother Henry Lewis Gates Jr., brother Skip, I said, "You see that brother talking about Nietzsche and Afrocentrism? I say he's going to be one of the great exemplars of our tradition. And you see, you're talking about the greatest tradition in the modern world that looks at catastrophe unflinchingly and still dishes out love warriors." Mm. Lovers of beauty, lovers of goodness, lovers of truth, and for myself as a Christian lover of of God. And those 30 years have been such a magnificent journey for me. So, this is a very joyous occasion in the grim days of the decay and decline of the American empire. Be in dialogue, my dear brother Eddie. And see what you have in in this text, and I, the people have. A, I want people to see what it looks like. <laughs> see what it looks like. See what you have in this text is the way in which you attempt to regenerate and revitalize the greatness of a tradition mm-hmm. of black intellectuals or any intellectuals concerned about black doings and suffering. So he begins with Baldwin talking about the end of his life. Mm-hmm. this is how this is where hope comes from right? i've tried to do my work he says to my brother i hope somebody will find when they dig in the wreckage and the rubbles and the ruins something that could be of use to them yes to find the best of me this is what we have in this text that's why mm-hmm. it really brings tears in one's eyes you know it's like uh you hear the sister saying aretha and lo and behold, she started taking it to a whole new level. Say so if somebody listen to Mary Lou Williams on the piano like Jerry Allen and say, I'm going to take Mary Lou to places she doesn't do, but I can't exist without Mary. Well, see, Eddie Glaude is the exemplary figure among others as well. We got some others. I know we got Jonathan out there. We got Mark and we got William Hart and old brother Dyson. As much as I'm going at that brother, he's part of that too. Uh, Imani Perry, of course, Farrah Griffin. We got a whole cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. of trying to keep this tradition alive. So Eddie Glott represents the voices of a cloud of witnesses, a custodian of a rich inheritance and a caretaker of a great tradition of a hated people that still keep dishing out these levels of truth and beauty. So this is why to engage with somebody like Baldwin, who exemplifies the highest levels of
2: greatness. Mm.
3: Greatness not in terms of just sales. I'm so glad I want the book to be number one. But the greatness of the text is not measured by just the numbers. Is measured by what went into it. The courage to think critically, the courage to love, and the courage to generate hope. And to Mm -hmm. practice hope is to be connected to the best of one's tradition to understand what has gone into the making and molding. That Moss Point kind of love, (laughs) all the way down in Gut Bucket, magnificent Mississippi. You see, that's what's in it. Look at that smile. Look at that smile. That's what's in it. And to make that tradition available to the whole world, because the whole world's dealing with levels of different catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And these people have been able to somehow keep, keep it on, keep on pushing. And so that's what you actually get and begin again. And let's just be honest about it. It's the tear-soaked, blood-soaked, and yet soulful tradition. That's Absolutely. what you get in this
2: text. Absolutely. You know, the, Doc, first of all, I wish, I, I, I hope my mama's listening. That's what I want. I, I pray that she heard that, because that, <laughs> you're going to bring me to tears. But but um, there's there's a line that, there's so many lines in Jimmy mm. that, blue, that that will blow you away. But there's a moment in Istanbul, he's being interviewed uh, by Ebony. Um, and he uses "begin again," and and Baldwin is sitting there, and it's 1970, I think, and and the interviewer asks him, "What then about hope?" Because oh, yeah. Baldwin retreats. This is on page
3: 145 in the text. I remember. I remember that. Right. Remember Baldwin retreats. I remember retreats exactly to what he said. I remember what he what said. What did he say? What did he say? He says hope must be invented every day every day he invented every day is that right that's right oh you see that's our tradition brother that's our tradition that's dog. our tradition There, hope is not abstract it's the verb it's motion it's movement it's deed, is praxis, and you got to be improvisational about it. You got to be jazz-like about it. You got to be blues-like about it. You better reinvent that thing every day. Good morning, heartache. I got to reinvent my fortifying resources to deal with that heartache, and it's going to come back the next day. Exactly. It's going to come back the next day. It's going to come back the next day. You get Billy Holiday echoing through with her Genius, Baldwin right there. And Baldwin, of course, he, he understands the musicians mean the world to him.
2: Absolutely. Oh, but that's that's yes. pretty- so I was thinking about that line as an answer to Maya. Mm-hmm. In, in the face of the assassination of Dr. King mm-hmm. where they murdered an apostle of love mm-hmm. and Jimmy collapses, could barely pick up the pieces, yeah. tries to commit suicide in 69, mm-hmm. has to find you know relationships collapsing around him, still thinks he's this loveless child who's ugly because his daddy told him he was so ugly that he then believed that nobody could love that ugly little boy. Mm -hmm. Finds himself in Istanbul trying to figure out how to speak to this moment. And there, he gives utterance to this line, this formulation that Doc just laid out. Hope is invented every day. Every
3: day. day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's... uh, that's real
1: though, brother. That's what real. a necessary practice. What a necessary practice that we in fact are the hope. You know, it is it is our commitment to um, to showing up that is the hope, that is the model, that is uh, the practice of witness and he True. was just so right so often,
3: even see, in the Methodist Sister Maya. Day. All the courage and risk and willingness to be crushed and misunderstood and misconstrued and thoroughly uh, uh, pushed to the fringes and still have that kind of bounce back, see? That's it. That's the Mm, raw stuff. You see what I mean? That's That's the stuff, you see? So that, uh, you know, what we have in Brother Eddie's book here in the middle of a a blues-like situation in the U.S. Empire, he's saying, well, you know, we blues people, this ain't new for us. We've been here before. Mm. Not this particular historical moment, but similar kinds of moments. And it's a human thing. It's not just a Black thing, because Black folk are human beings, presupposed, assume, don't have to prove nothing to nobody.
2: That's and yet we right.
3: still have to learn how to love and fight and hope and laugh in our families with our mamas and our daddies and our mosques and our temples and our synagogues and our churches in our universities. Eddie mm-hmm. working that out at Princeton. <laughs> Ooh, no. now you know, Princeton didn't have in mind no. a genius from Moth Point, Mississippi, Mississippi, Mississippi <laughs> <laughs> to be distinguished university professor. Now, Jeff Stout is not surprised. He's our fellow colleague and teacher. I'm not surprised. Robert Roberto's not surprised. We, we got teachers and those who see us as we continue to grow and mature. We not surprised. But then the fact that he's still, like Baldwin, is connected to the best of his tradition, though. You
2: see, that's, right.
3: that's the thing about it. That uh you know, the, that other moment at Howard, though, you probably won't say a little word when 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 he tells the students. I won't, I won't oh, say what he tells. No, no, no! You
2: tell <laughs> You tell that story, brother. <laughs> no, this is a gorgeous moment, right? They nag Nonviolent Action Group, via uh, who were so central to to SNCC. They produced that radical cohort in mm. that group. It's Muriel Tillinghast and and Cortland Cox and mm. Stokely Carmichael, who would Ooh. become who would become Kwame Touré, Michael Thelwell. They all come out of that group. Mm-hmm. So they invite him to come to campus. He's supposed to be on. On, on stage with Ralph Ellison, who couldn't make it, and Lorraine, who was too sick, uh, Ozzie Davis and others, and he lays bare. But then they retreat after the, the panel discussion. Malcolm was in that audience, too. Say, said, whenever I'm in town and I hear this little brother's gonna speak, I wanna come hear him because I know he's gonna speak the truth. They go to the apartment complex, the apartment of some one of the NAG members, and it's late night. Jimmy needs a scotch. There's no liquor. Somebody knows a bootlegger. So they get the liquor, and they they they're, they're talking until the late midnight hour till the sun begins to come up and then Baldwin has the last word and Jimmy said if you promise your elder brother that you will not believe what the world says about you i will promise you that i will never betray you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and Kwame Ture tells Michael Thelwell in his biography autobiography and Thelwell quotes it, and Jimmy never betrayed us, no matter what they said about us. Never That's betrayed powerful.
3: us. Now, I was sitting next to Stokely Carmichael Kwame Touré at the funeral, December 1987, St. John's Cathedral, when a genius named Baraka and another genius named Tony Morrison gave wow. their hearts, minds, and soul, and Stokely cried like a baby. Mm-hmm. Wow. I've traveled with Stokely and he's not in the crying kind of he ain't crying kind of brother <laughs> because he knew that given all the faults and foibles of all of us as human beings Baldwin never sold out he was never fake he was never a phony, he was never a fraud he was never a
2: coward
0: mm.
3: given all of his ups and downs I means two suicide attempts, right?
2: 55 and 69, yeah absolutely mm-hmm.
3: You see, he's wrestling with despair. That's true for all of us. All of us may not opt for that particular way of wrestling. with it. He's wrestling with despair. But he never betrayed everyday Black people, or really everyday people, you see. And that's that—that's a rare thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's majestic. It's sublime, actually. And you're able to tease that out. I mean, this is why this, this is the most important text ever written on Baldwin in terms of his genius and his Relevance. Now, you know, Brother Ed's uh, public's check on Baldwin and the Blues, I love. Mm. That connection to the, the music is powerful. But in terms of the relevance to this particular historical moment, politically, morally, and spiritually,
1: this one. This is the text. Oh, this thank is you. the thank one. You. Absolutely. Yeah, You have made it abundantly clear that James Baldwin was a man who looked first into the faces of his own demons in order yeah, to be yeah. honest with himself because he was a person who believed you made yourself from your experiences, from your reality. Yeah. Um, and that maybe you could give yourself some distance to get the perspective, but that you had to come back and show up for your people and for where you're from and for yourself. And that's abundantly clear throughout the the text.
2: Yeah, you know, I bear you know, Mike, it's such a great point. I barely survived writing the book.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Cause you know I wanted to come in. I'm I'm reading. You know, Jimmy. I I've always had this kind of. You know, I knew when I I knew when I decided to start reading him seriously that he was gonna he was gonna ask things of me that I wasn't quite ready for when I was younger, right? And there's a sense in which Baldwin always assumes this as a precondition to say anything about the messiness of the world. You got to deal with your own mess. So you got to deal with the interior the interior wounds and pains as a precondition to say anything about the world. Because Baldwin thinks that the messiness of the world is actually a reflection of the lies and dishonesty that we tell ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm mm. I'm sitting here wanting to write about trumpism in the moment and I'm grappling with the fact that I'm a vulnerable little boy still dealing with my daddy issues still grappling with the fact that he could just, and that's why I began there, this way. My father, I love my father's Black love. He made me possible. Woke up every day in the Mississippi heat, used to sweat his belts rotten in the Mississippi heat, you know, delivering mail. But he could look at me and scare me to death. I would shudder. And... I've been grappling with what it means to have that fear put inside of me so early. And and I was as I was writing, the sentence just came out right about me dealing with my daddy. Mm -hmm. And and you know, by the time I get to the end of the novel, again, end of the book, my father is with me as I visit Jimmy's grave. And, and I'm talking about how us telling each other how we love each other, how he's calling me to tell me what to say on television and, and how proud he is <laughs> of me and the like, right? And when you read Jimmy, you read Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son. His critique of his stepfather is scathing. But you read Baldwin by the time he's about to die in December, the later writings about his father. He understands what the world did to him. Mm-hmm. It's not so much him, but the context of his living. So I think this the writing of begin again is a kind of writing that I've never done in public before. I'm taking risks because Jimmy demanded of demanded it of me. And I I could how and I should say this really quickly He forced me to deal with the scaffolding of
1: my own lives. Yes, yes, absolutely. He's asking that of our country as as well. Right. Um, Those of us who are trying to to pull the nation back from the neo-fascist moment, uh, to be honest with with ourselves for. Because the narratives are important. So if you take a moment to speak to your definition of both the lie, you know, as you talk about it in the book, and the notion of the value gap, um, resolving those things, I would, I would love to hear the two of you discuss that.
2: Well, you know, the, um, the best way to talk about the lie is the quote a passage on, on page nine. It's from Jimmy's essay, 1964 essay, The White Problem. He wrote it in uh, for uh, Robert A. Goodwin's uh, edited volume, A Hundred Years of Emancipation. And he reads, the people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. Or if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. That lie is the basis of our present trouble. And so what Baldwin is saying here at the heart of it is that there have been lies told about black people's capacities, about our character, about our passions, all to justify, right? This system of exploitation, this system, this cruel barbaric system of, of slavery that is at the heart of the founding of the modern world, right? At the heart of the founding of the country. And so not only do you have lies about black people, you have lies about what white Americans have done to black people. And then you have the lie that's so this is the key point. There's there's a way in which the lie works that it malforms, I use that verb on purpose, mm-hmm. it malforms any real any effort to expose the country to the reality of what it has done. So anything that any anything that comes to reveal the truth of what the of what the nation has done. Mm-hmm. Right? What it has done to the native peoples, what it has done in Haiti and Cuba and the Philippines, what it has done in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, anything that actually reveals that America is not the shining city on the hill or the redeemer nation or the example of democracy achieved, right? Anything that ep- Anything that attempts to reveal that reality is immediately dismissed as heresy. Absolutely. Delegitimized from the beginning, you know. But anyway, that's what I mean by the lie. And that lie is the architecture within which the value gap breathes. And the value gap is this fundamental belief that white people matter more than others. And that's at the heart of it. It's at the heart of our social arrangements, our political arrangements, our economic arrangements. It's a valuation of black folk and a valuation of white folk that lead to the distribution of advantage and disadvantage that distorts the character of these folk who hold it. So they can't even become the kinds of people their conception of democracy requires.
1: Absolutely, sounds to me what you're saying is that um, the key tool we have to fighting that foundational fear that Audrey Lord says we're born with is to have a true reality a sense of who we actually are that we in fact are human without having to ask that we are equal that we are as important that we are deserving of love that we are not ugly right that's the sort of crucial truth we have to hold in our hearts in order to fight the fear that that enters immediately at the beginning of our breath um i'm going to read just a little passage from from the book and then ask you one more question about this notion of innocence But the lie's most pernicious effect when it comes to our history is the malform events to fit the story whenever America's innocence is threatened by reality. When measured against our actions, the story we have told ourselves about America being a divinely sanctioned nation called to be a beacon of light and a moral force in the world is a lie. The idea of the lost cause as just an honest assessment of what happened after the Civil War is a lie. The stories we often tell ourselves of the civil rights movement and racial progress in this country with Rosa Parks's courage and Dr. King's moral vision and the unreasonable venom of black power culminating in the election of Barack Obama are all too often lies. So I wonder, what could we gain if we disabused ourselves of the notion of innocence? Um, as it relates to the citizenry and the state.
2: Oh, what you know? On one level, we could leave behind the swaddling clothing. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can we can become mature. Mm. We can grow up. The lie keeps us in Never Never Land, perpetual state of adolescence. So you don't have to be responsible for anything. Right? The lie. Uh, allows us to to exist in a kind of willful ignorance about what we have done and what we are doing. Remember that moment in Fire Next Time in '63, right when he talks about what is happening to black folk. He says it's not it's not just that line that is echoed uh, in in in, in uh, that uh, you know what's that movie with uh, 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 the late brother with uh, Ice Cube and uh, where he said they don't know either they don't know or they don't show. Remember that movie. Uh, boys in the hood. Oh, right? the great
3: John Singleton. John yes, Singleton, yes.
2: right? It's not just simply mm-hmm. if they don't know or they don't show. Remember that line. And what he's saying is, it's not just not, It's not that they don't know. They willfully don't want to acknowledge what they're doing to millions of their fellows, right? And Baldwin says it's not enough that you can do that, but and then claim innocence. Innocence is the crime. Yes. Innocence is the crime. But I think once we leave that behind, we're stepping into maturity. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Right. Right. That's why I went to Corinthians. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it's part of the greatness of
3: Baldwin is that he also knows how thick white supremacy is in the souls of black people. For real. Right. the, The lie has been something that too many black people have consented to. So if you really believe you're less beautiful, less intelligent, less moral, if you run around scared, intimidated, and fearful all the time and laughing when it don't, it ain't funny, and scratching when it don't itch, you're just going to wear a mask your whole life. So Paul mm. says the only thing that can break the back of fear is love. The love of beauty will break you. Mm. you, listen,
2: to,
3: yeah. you listen to the dramatic. You, you you listen to the emotions. You listen to so cold training. You got the pursuance in there twice. He's got the reference to that third part of a love supreme
2: yeah, song.
3: on the drums and then jimmy takes over on the bass then mccoy comes on the piano then jimmy on the bass then train takes it off and then they off the psalm that that is the stuff that can break the back of fear because fear is something that all human beings have to come to terms with i mean audrey lord as, as sister maya pointed out she understood that well lorraine Hansbury understood that well and raised it in the sun People are fearful. The only way you grow into maturity is through a sense of history, your sense of memory, and the love that within to you that empowers you to break the kinds of anxieties that don't allow you to be the free person you ought to be. Uh, uh, and and, 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 and it, Brother Eddie lays this out. Love forces us to take off the mask we know.
2: Right.
3: We cannot live within, but fear we cannot live without you got to break it out. That's right. Muhammad Ali and Nina Simone. These are free black people. Yes. And Baldwin was part of that cloud of witnesses and Brother Eddie. Now see, Eddie put more responsibility on himself now because Baldwin, of course, was, was, was someone who was chewed up and spit out by the liberal establishment. That's why Brother Eddie argues no name in the street is a classic. Brother Skip, we love Skip. Brother Hilton, we love Hilton. They're wrong. <laughs> they say Baldwin was great and fire next time, and by no name in the street, he had lost his literary power, he was bitter, he was enraged. Now, reread Glaude and get straightened out. <laughs> there is a genius in Baldwin after the deaths of Malcolm and Martin and Metcalf. There's a right. genius in Baldwin where the only thing he can fall back on. Is the love of his family, Mahalia Jackson, Ray Charles, and others, because as he got closer to death, which is true for all of us, that those things that really, really, really matter that can sustain you, that's where, it's, that's what you're going to fall back on.
1: Absolutely, it's going to yeah. be your
3: grandmom and granddaddy and your kids and your friends and your partners and your intellectual ancestors, like the, uh, yeah. uh that, that we get involved with. Brother Eddie lays this out.
1: He sure does. You know, you know Baldwin never stopped telling the truth, um, even when it seemed that he was fully disheartened. You know, Dr. Glad points out a a, a reading or a passage in that first um, couple of sections that that could be read as saying, "Oh, Baldwin gave up." But what he did is he gave um, a framework for old age, right? Which is not something we introduce to uh, our young activists or talk about much at at school. We talked mm-hmm. earlier about. Um, recursiveness about, you know, a uh, Love Supreme having that third movement where you sort of re uh, rehear the melody even though he's, you know, do, m- doing more for dissonance in order to show um, the beauty and the destruction in the lyric, right? Like, that's important. Um, I want to add, I want to turn to this idea that Dr. Glad points out in the book of trauma me- memory, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where that sort of thing yes. Yes, yes. comes out. Yeah. Because you didn't stop saying the same facts, you just had a different perspective, a new lens that comes with age and it comes with uh, devastation. Right.
2: Yeah, you know. Um, hey, true. I, I try to say that you know the, I think you know the ball the scholarship around Jimmy is is much more, um, articulated and 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 it's it's just amazing to see the work with James Baldwin Review with Dwight uh, McBride and others. Uh, so the, the traditional reading of old Baldwin, late Baldwin, early Baldwin, late Baldwin, uh, folk don't really buy into that anymore. That, that, that silly biography by James Campbell, um, has been kind of displaced by others, um, who have been working in, 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 in Jimmy's work. But I want to hold on to this claim that there's a continuity of theme, uh, running through Jimmy, mm-hmm. uh, that he's grappling with ideas under different material conditions that change how he's thinking about love, identity, history, memory, right? How he's thinking about white supremacy and the life. Um, so it's not that he goes bad in the teeth or he succumbs to the propaganda of black power or he seeks only a kind of continued relevance after he's fallen out of, out of celebrity as it were. No. He's grappling with the conditions under which black folk have to live and the conditions under which love has to be expressed. Mm-hmm. That's why I think somebody has to really grapple with the evidence of things not seen. right? Mm-hmm. When he's writing about the Atlanta child murders and he's trying to figure out what's, what, what are we dealing with when these black babies are being killed and we got all these black folk in power. How are we going to grapple with this? right? Uh, the book needed a good editing, but it's a brilliant text. That requires a different kind of reading. But I I, I, I think though that, that trauma is at the heart of, 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 of how we think about uh reading Jimmy in this latter phase, right? How he's grappling with and narrating trauma. There's a line I want to get to in the witness chapter. And I remember writing this on uh, my my corn and, and trying to figure out. I got up after I wrote it and poured myself a stiff drink Mm. because I knew uh, something had just happened. Um, And it goes something like this, narrating trauma, this is on 41. Narrating trauma fragments how we remember. Mm -hmm. We recall what we can and what we desperately need to keep ourselves together. Wounds, historical and painfully present, threaten to rend the soul. And if that happens, nothing else matters. Telling the story of trauma in fits and starts isn't history in any formal sense. It is the way traumatic memory works, recollections caught in the pitch of battle between remembering and forgetting. That's Tony right there. Mm, yes, facts is. facts bungled on behalf of much needed truths. We try to keep our heads above water and tell ourselves a story that keeps our legs and arms moving below the surface. And then I go on page forty three and I say terror cannot
3: page forty three and forty four.
2: Yeah, 40, 43 and 40.
3: 41. We want everybody to know, read those powerful words, page 43, and then 44.
2: I don't have my glasses on. Uh, I had to take mine off to check it out, too. But I <laughs> well, That's 43 and 44. And then that's on 45, right. I quote this passage. Mm-hmm. Terror cannot be remembered. One blots it out. The organism, the human being blots it out. One uh. invents or creates a personality or a persona beneath this accumulation rock of ages. Sleeps our hopes to sleep, that terror which the memory repudiates. And then I said the cruel irony, of course, is that terror, the terrors move us about. We dig trenches to redirect the memories and to get them to flow away from us. But like the waters of the Mississippi River, the memories always return, flooding everything, no matter how high we build the stilts, right? So I think at the end, Baldwin is trying to, in the latter part of his career, trying to tell the story of what happened, right? And trying to offer a language that will allow us, right, to pick up the pieces and move forward. You cannot understand, to my mind, you cannot understand what Tony is doing with memory and beloved and not understand what what Baldwin is doing with memory and no name in the street. Mm -hmm. Structurally, it's almost, right, They're echoing each other in these extraordinarily beautiful ways. Mm-hmm. Memory turning back on itself, anything triggering the return, mm-hmm. the way he Dot mm-hmm. Dorothy Counts. Much, much yes. is plotted out. The mind is a strange thing. He's dealing with the verb, he was on the verge of madness in yes, the face yes, of it
3: all. Yes.
2: And you're going to dismiss that, Doc? You're going to dismiss that.
3: That's rich. But back to Maya's reading, though, at the very beginning of our dialogue. Where right before you talk about beginning again, you were talking about what is not lost. And what is not lost is responsibility, mm-hmm. responding, an ability to respond, accountability, accounting yeah. of oneself, accounting of one's community, accounting of one's society in the world, answerability. You know, that's Brother Jeff's favorite. One of his favorite <laughs> yeah. words, right? Yeah, it with, is. With, 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 with Brando. We have to be able to answer one another. And you see, this is Baldwin gets this in Black music. You see that the musicians must take responsibility for the notes they play, right or wrong, responsibility for the sound, responsibility for the impact on the audience. Are you going to touch the souls of the folk to enable them in such a way that they can be agents of love and hope? And I think Baldwin understood, and and Brother Eddie lays this out so magnificently that. the black intellectual ought to be like the black musician see, when black folks see the black musician they say that's somebody who will more than likely empower me if they sing in the right key and know how to know how to play mm-hmm. whereas black intellectuals don't have that status black intellectuals oh no here comes another arrogant so-and-so looking down on everyday people thinking they better than uppity and so forth and so on you yeah see, no. if the black intellectuals had the same status as the black musicians they would be looking for us. Oh, we hungry for more narrative. We hungry for more poetry. We we want Haki. We want Gwendolyn. We want the last poet. We want Yo Scott. We can go on and on. Yeah.
1: So let best, me best. make this argument that the poets are Black intellectuals. Oh, that are, absolutely. That are yeah, absolutely. That's true. That are And so, so are the musicians. She
3: says, so the absolutely. absolutely. But, 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 but the gap, but though, Sister Maya, between the intellectuals in the academy mm. versus the musicians is still a gap there
1: but the bridge mm. then is the poets who are in the academy and moving with music
3: moving back and forth no i hear
1: you mm. i hear you, mm. I, hear you.
3: Absolutely. I mean brother eddie knows that you know part of my critique of Baldwin because i'm always suspicious of any revival of default you know there's a lot of big <laughs> revival you know what i mean and we appreciate Bowen is unbelievable you know and you know, I've been critical of Brother Coates, and I love the brother. His voice is very important and so forth and so on. But that was generated by his relation to Brother James Baldwin, because Baldwin's the highest standard. Very, very, very few Baldwins, any any two or three generations, let alone one. But, but the voices are very important, no matter who, including coach. But my critique is, and Brother Eddie, uh, we talk about this with, with Mark and Pete and Chuck and the others, that uh, Baldwin doesn't linger with his critique of the worst of the black bourgeoisie, mm. his critique of white liberals is devastating. His critique of black liberals, underdeveloped, is there, but he doesn't really sustain it. It's not an E. Franklin Fraser indictment of the black bourgeoisie in 1955. And you see, in the Obama post-Obama era that we live in. We've got to have a bold critique of the worst of the black bourgeoisie that has, in fact, too often turns it back to the black poor and black working class. Mm-hmm. Now, with the best of the black bourgeoisie, it's beautiful. But, but Baldwin tends to be reluctant, it seems to me. Is, is, is that
2: fair or unfair? What do you think, though, brother? I think I think this is this this is why we need to return to the evidence of things not seen.
3: The Atlanta
2: situation. Yeah, because I think I, pres- I think this is precisely the moment mm-hmm. that you're lo- that you're looking for. Okay, because Baldwin, 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 what happens when white supremacy still obtains and black folk have power? What are we to make of Atlanta? This representation of the very class that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So white folk aren't the object in in the object of consideration in evidence that things not seen. Right, white supremacy. Right? Right. He makes that wonderful distinction between white people and people who happen to be white, which I love, right? Yeah. Trying to get us to pay attention to the ideology of whiteness. But the object of that critique is the way in which power functions and the way in which capitalism functions and what happens when we get access to it. Mm. And mm. white supremacy still obtains. And because the book is often I remember when I talked, interviewed Michael Thelwell for the book, I said, you know, uh, we got to return to evidence of things not seen. And, and Thelwell said, oh, hell no. <laughs> and he was like, nah, man, there, there, no, he just wrote that. It, it was too quick. Jimmy probably was drunk when he wrote that edit. I was like, but that, that probably, but that that doesn't really yeah. lead us <laughs> to the judgment of text. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, think, I think the general dismissal of that book uh, mm-hmm. cuts it off. I think it needs to be, because we don't read it because it's not in, the price of the ticket. We don't read it because it's not in the Library of America uh, collection. So it kind of dangles out there. And I think that's exactly where we would look for that critique you're looking for. Because what happens is the black intelligentsia gets so disarmed in the
3: age of Obama. So that we didn't have enough critical voices telling the truth about the connection to Wall Street and drones and empire and so forth. Everybody wanted to protect them. Well, black unity is a beautiful thing. Black solidarity is different. See, black solidarity means the you put a primacy on the least of these. I go biblical. The poor, the working classes, the the, the the widows, the fatherless, not just the highly successful ones who are doing well. They're not the measure of how black people are doing.
1: You are absolutely
3: right. You right. see what I
1: mean? So, You're right. Um, I want to ask before we pivot because we're about to move to this part where the questions come. In oh, addition okay. to the people like he and Taylor who are who did critique Obama. Um, oh, and who she's, are
3: strong. she's still as strong as can be. And she at Princeton too. What's
1: I'm going like, on at Princeton? Wildly. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm wildly uh, proud of her. But I want to ask one more question with with this this framework framework that Dr. West has provided to us before we transition to um to the questions from the audience. So can you speak to the possibility of genuinely multiracial democracy while capitalism persists? Doc, you want to take that, or you want?
3: can oh, you? I I got a whole lot to say, but you uh, you you go and break loose on that one, my brother.
2: Uh, of, you know, of course. I mean, we have to have we have to freedom dream, right? Uh, that it have. I think there's a a possibility for uh, a multiracial coalition to 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 speak to the contradictions of capitalism in this moment. Um, but I don't, as long as capitalism obtains, there's going to be the view that some people are disposable,
1: it seems to me. Works in tandem um, with white supremacy in that way.
2: Oh, well, racial capitalism is what it is, right? And so part of, but but that doesn't preclude, because I, if I understand the question, it doesn't preclude the possibility of multiracial coalition. To actually strike the blow to the, to what capitalism is all, because the contradictions are in full view. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the interesting things about this current moment is that that the last forty to fifty years uh, of Reaganism, right, we are is being revealed to be bankrupt.
3: Right, that's right.
2: All all mm-hmm. of his contradictions are in full view, mm-hmm. and so part of what we're seeing in the streets are. You know, young folk who who have come who've come of age in the age of catastrophe or accumulated uh, grief and and the like. You see uh, folk protesting over police brutality and the like. You see a kind of uh, solidarity and vulnerability that the pandemic has generated. Um, but the idea underneath it all, or at least the judgment underneath it all, is that the country is broken, right? And and that's why we see all of these different groups and coalitions. Uh, uh, out in the streets, risking their lives, we must say, because they are risking their lives. So, so, so. The, my short answer to the question is yes. I believe that in the possibility of multiracial coalitions uh, in the face of 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 capital. Cornell, does that make oh, sense? Oh
3: no, well, we got to have you got to have solidarity and coalitions based on deep integrity and willingness to fight for poor people, beginning with people of color, not just black people. Original sin of America is not slavery; it's the treatment of indigenous peoples. America begins as an empire, doesn't begin as a democratic experiment,
2: mm-hmm.
3: a democratic experiment within the bowels of the empire itself predicated on black folks, labor and vicious hatred of black people. But, yes, we got to have multiracial coalition. There's just no doubt about that. It just have to make sure all those coalitions have to be unapologetic about fighting white supremacy and male supremacy and transphobia and homophobia and so forth. Yes. But at the same time, Baldwin himself talked about the American style of socialism. You got Absolutely, right
2: Yankee.
3: Yeah, Yankee, like <laughs> you <know>? Yankee. doodly socialism. Yankee doodly. about Bobby and the other. Exactly. You know? Absolutely. He began as a Trotskyite when he was when he, when he was young.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
3: Very, very much so. And Empire. I mean, here, uh, you know, with uh, Juma Baraka and Glenn Ford and all of our, our, our leftist folk, they 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 keep the pressure on. America is an empire and a predatory capitalist civilization Mm -hmm. and profoundly white supremacy at its core, profoundly male supremacists at its core, uh, with its transphobia and homophobia. But within that same experiment, there have been freedom fighters and love warriors coming out of a variety of different traditions. we, We, you know, culturally and artistically have actually been in the
1: vanguard of it. Yep. I don't mean to set up that question as though it is uh, an opposition. I mean to no, continue with no, this concern no, no. that all of those coalitions must be honest and, and evaluated critically and honestly, the, the black liberal as well as the the, the like toting leftist, right? Oh, absolutely. Right. absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, yeah. Um, before we make this transition to, to audience questions, are there um, thoughts you want to share? Uh,
2: you know the 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 um, I I I I always thought that Jimmy was walking with me as I wrote the book. I was I didn't tell you this story, Doc, but as I was writing the book, Reverend Barber. I said, he said, I talked to Reverend Barber, and he was, uh, that's why y'all need to buy the book, not to buy the book, but in order to give, get some money to the Poor People's Campaign. But, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Reverend, Reverend Barber said, you need to write this book, Brother Eddie. You need to write it. We need this book. We need you, right? And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, I get this package in the mail. And Reverend Barber sent me a candle. Yeah. Oh. Jim-
3: <laughs> wow. Jim-
2: And, you know, and then there were these moments, you know, it's like when, uh, you know, uh, Fern Margie Eckman, uh, who wrote the first biography of Jimmy in 1966, wrote The Furious Passage. And there are all of these these amazing quotes in that biography. And I remember saying, well, I wish I could find the archive of these. Quotations and Imani Perry, who's my writing partner, was like, "Well, why don't you call?" I said, "Fern Margie Ekman has to be like a hundred years old," and she said, "And and of course, given what what Dr. Perry is, she she sent me all of these telephone numbers via email. So I called the first number. Lo and behold, Fern Margie Ekman is alive. I go to the apartment in New York, and I meet her niece, and 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 the niece says the tapes are lost." but I got the transcripts Mm. and I'm reading and it wasn't like five to 10 pages, It's a hundred pages of transcription of the interviews. So Baldwin's description of witness that isn't in Furious Passage, I found in that space. Jimmy like sent me to it, right? Or the moment when I wanted to visit his grave at the end with Carol Weinstein.
3: Yeah. And
2: Carol Weinstein, who's the partner of David Baldwin, uh, they have a beautiful son together, Daniel Baldwin. Um, Carol drives me to the uh, to to the to the uh, graveyard uh, the grave uh, site, uh, and and uh, we think we're gonna find him and we're walking all around. And these brothers, they are young brothers, right? Millennials, Gen Zers, and and they smoking woo's, they getting zooted. I'm dating myself, they're getting high, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, roll down the window, docking the weed. It was loud, we just came in strong. And and you know, we asked him, I, I write about this at the end of the book. We said, Yo, do you know where James Baldwin's grave is? Brother turns around and he says, No, nah, we don't know, but he might be buried near Malcolm, and Malcolm is over there. Hmm. And Carol says, No, nah, he's not buried near Malcolm. So then when we would return. I find Jimmy, and he's right behind the young folk. Hmm. In wow. plain state, bruh. Mm. Waiting for us. Wow. For wow. Us. That's the conclusion I draw. He's been waiting to see what this history will do for us, and he still waits. Thank digging, you know. digging in
3: the, <laughs> the ruins. Digging <laughs> in the wreckage. I mean, the third American founding that you talk about in the last pages of the text, very similar in some ways to what Brother Barber talks about in the third Reconstruction. Exactly. In a new means a, a massive, radical, democratic awakening
2: to mm-hmm.
3: keep track of all of the various forms of domination and, and, and various forms of evil in the American empire. Uh, um, brother, this is a this is a text that is timely and will be timeless in terms of the folk who will be reading it many, many years after the graves have the worms have our bodies. I can tell you, tell you
2: that. And Sister Maya, let me say this before we turn to the questions. Doc talked about the love. This man has loved me to death. And without his love and example, um, none of this would be possible. Um, he loved me into understanding that this country boy from Mississippi could, could say something in the world. gave me Gave me the authority to believe in myself. And to understand that I had the capacity to think with anybody, to walk in any room, to be a free black man, yes. and to understand what it means to walk in love. So he poured all his love in me, and I just want to give him all the glory. Not all the glory, because it goes <laughs> to God, but also, Lord,
3: all Lord, the Lord, God. Lord. You give me so much joy. And my godson, Langster. That's one of the great honors of my life. His son, mm-hmm. my godson, Sister Winnie. I'm hugging her virtually. Can't can't get to her physically. But also your parents, your mom and dad down down in Mississippi, man. And they were mm-hmm. it's just a. It's just such a blessing to be part of a great tradition, knowing that you're holding up that blood-stained, tear-soaked banner in mm-hmm. such a way that the self-examination goes hand in hand with the fortitude. The determination to keep on fighting, keep on swinging.
1: This is so
3: beautiful. Brother Eddie Glock Jr. <laughs> <J. R. laughs>
1: <laughs> what a beautiful exchange! Thank you so much for allowing me to be witness to that. I'm so grateful you, you know, were able to be loved into the best version of yourself, um, that you. you would share that with me and with us. Um, man, I feel bad giving a pitch now, but. all right before we begin the um the audience questions i want to remind everyone about this book begin again which you can buy from labyrinth for um free shipping if you put in that baldwin code and also 10 percent of those sales go to the poor people's campaign and that's like work we need to be doing so please do um Pick up this book that is guiding the young people who need to know about Baldwin into this future that we are going to fight for together. So um, do that and also register for um, these upcoming events, one with Marion Kaba, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law tomorrow. That's the second. And then another with Rua Benjamin and Dorothy Roberts on the 8th. You can register on Eventbrite. Also, um, Haymarket is hosting the Socialism Conference on the 4th of July. Uh, all right. That's wonderful. We do it every year. It's a perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from Tusker, we've got what lesser-known Black voices and other voices of color can the two of you recommend to the audience for studying guidance, whether historical or present?
3: Hmm.
2: What comes to mind for begin, you, Doug?
3: I would begin with this magisterial text just published by my dear sister Carrie, Carrie Kindred, on William Monroe Trotter. Black radical went up against Booker T. Washington, went up against W.B. Du Bois, ended up working closely with the young socialist, A. Philip Randolph, with FBI hunting him down. Went to, stayed in the basement of William Monroe Trotter in Boston. Now, 62 years old, he committed suicide, jumped off the top of the building because he felt, in fact, that uh, black folk had turned their backs on him. He was the editor of The Guardian. Mm-hmm. But his life is exemplary. And uh, Professor Kendrick, Sister Kendrick's, uh, uh carries book really allows his voice to become much more visible. And he's in the same tradition as Baldwin, as Lorraine Hansberry, as mm-hmm. Eddie Claude Jr. and all the rest <laughs> of it. So, oh, yeah.
2: I'm going to let that one stand like that. You, We can go to the next one, if that's good. <laughs> that's some Alice Childress, you know. That'll <laughs> help. Oh, that's true.
1: That's a good jumping-off point. Um, from Laura Sullivan, how do we deal with neoliberalism's patterns of commodifying, appropriating, and affectively manipulating radical discourses, practices, and emotions? You can take a oh. moment. Sit with that.
2: Yeah. No. I. You know. I think we have to. We have to. How can I put this? And this is going to sound a bit too 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 um, abstract. Um, but I think we have to figure out how to be together differently under these contemporary moral, con- under the, the contemporary material conditions, right? So how do we resist the way in which neoliberalism reduces us to become, reduces us to being individuals in pursuit of our own self-interest in competition and rivalry with other individuals in pursuit of their own self-interest, mm-hmm, Right and because we're individuals in pursuit of our own self-interest and competition and rivalry are the basic uh, values that define that, right? It eviscerates any notion of the public good, right? This is why you got folk can't, can't, can't understand why they, why they, why they cannot wear masks, right? They have no conception of what a robust understanding of standing in relation with others in genuine community. Mm -hmm. So part of, Part of what we have to do, it seems to me, is to figure out how to build relationships with one another, right? Uh, That in some ways hold off that model, that way of being in the world, right? Build communities of love that allow you to laugh full belly laughs, to be rageful, right? Those folk who will enable you, right? to reach for a different way of being in the world, right? And I'm not trying to sound like Alistair McIntyre, Doc, and talking about creating these little pockets where you can go (laughs) off and and run away from from modernity. But I am saying that their way, how we forge relationships with one another becomes an active political gesture in this moment, it seems to me. Does that make sense, Doc, or is that too? Oh,
3: absolutely. The joy that you have in those relationships have to be deeper than the pleasure you get in other corners of the world, in other corners of the the community. See, joy is something qualitatively different than pleasure. Black people traditionally have been a soulful people because we've been a joyful people. You can't be soulful if your whole life is just about pleasure. Mm, You see? See, it's joy and pain. That's the genius of Frankie Beverly and It ain't pleasure and something else. It <laughs> the tradition that they come from, it has to cut at that deeper spiritual and moral level. And we have to be honest. We have to realize all of us, especially those of us in the black middle class, are always already commodified in one way or another. And that has to be the object of our critical reflection. It's like Baldwin and No Name in the street. He says, I know I'm the great white hope for the liberal establishment. I want to talk about that. I'm don't. I'm not i not going to be that hope for them. Now, that doesn't uh-huh. mean white folk. It doesn't mean he just kowtowing the black folk. He got something inside of him that's called a calling, not just a career. He got something inside of him called a cause, not just a brand. And I need to say that now in a highly commodified culture. Everybody can't wait to have a brand. Can't wait to have their brand. They missing the point. That's a key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, something something just ain't right. That's see. what Mama tells Walter in a raisin in the sun, right? We right. Used to talk about freedom. Now, all we're talking about is money. And what did Jimmy say about Sweet Lorraine? Imani's got it in her text. The difference between pull that, you pull that. Yeah, we can see that. Pull <laughs> oh, that genius right there from Chicago. Oh, oh, look in those eyes. And what did Jimmy <laughs> say about that genius? Jimmy said, She understood the difference between keeping the faith and making it. Everybody got in some sense, make it because you got to have cash. Mm -hmm. You don't live by bread alone. You got to keep the faith, whatever faith it is. You know, whatever faith it is, it's got to be a faith bigger than your ego, bigger than your narcissism, bigger than your career, bigger than your opportunism, bigger than your next PR move. You got to have something inside of you. And right. Brother Eddie Glad, he got something inside of him that he had before I even set eyes on
1: it's integrity. Mm. Integrity and empathy.
3: Absolutely. Mm. That's Morehouse as well as Mississippi. I'm going to give Morehouse some credit here. <laughs> <laughs> That's Morehouse, too. That's Morehouse, too.
1: I'm going to ask a little follow-up because this moment is particularly um, unusual that we're asking for deep Useful, productive connection, um, and a moment where we are not safe with active, close physical intimacy because of a pandemic. How do we build real closeness in a digital era? You know, when we're sort of trapped on platforms that are capitalist projects, and that are you know uh, fast forms of the kind of developed relationships or community-based ties that we would make in person otherwise.
2: Yeah, that's a
3: hard question. Well, well that's you know? a profound question. You ask yeah. me all profound <laughs> questions nice
2: yeah, that's no. a hard question, Maya. Um, I mean, you know, it's you know, I'm thinking about Wilma Jumist, Julmist June. Wilma Paul Taylor's wife. Mm. She lost a mama to COVID 19. And she couldn't go home to say goodbye to her. <sighs> couldn't send her home right because she was worried about coronavirus and her children. Mm-hmm. And you think about Wenton Marcellus and his daddy. It was complicated as that relationship. Oh yeah, brother Ellis, Brother Ellis, we love him. We love him. Never forget him. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do a second, they couldn't do a second line for him in, in New Orleans. Can you imagine that? They couldn't send him home right so there's there there's a way there are ways in which um, this current pandemic has has um, has has interrupted touch, has given grief a different sort of register It gives it an edge because um, grief now comes with regret. Mm. And, and grief and regret is is dangerous. Mm. Right. Mama, I wish I could have said to you that I I was sorry before you before you mm-hmm. went away. I wish I could have mm-hmm. resolved X, Y and Z. And so that's happening alongside of the fact that we are sheltering in place. And many of us are. And, and we don't we can't touch. We can't engage. But I think they're in the midst of this. So I'm trying to get to an answer to your question, is that in the midst of this, we have to find ways of being together.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So.
2: I'm in a reading group with Doc. Yep.
3: Oh, we have a good time
2: too. <laughs> Mr. All of this stuff we and you and I don't have time to even blink. But we 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 sitting here reading and for every two weeks we getting on the on on Zoom. And for two hours with our close partners, Mark Jefferson and Paul Taylor and Charles Peterson and Charles McKinney. And we just talking about the book. And there there might be a little liquor flowing, but the point is (laughs) we're trying to figure out how to maintain each other's soul, how to be a how to be not a crutch. But but a but a but a shoulder, mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. in the yes. midst of this, you know, and and so how are we going to be coming on the opposite end of this, you know, the way in which we're trying to continue community and stand in right relation with each other under these conditions. Mm-hmm. What it will look like when we get on the other side of this mm-hmm. might even be, it might just be even deeper, if that makes sense.
1: I certainly uh, hope so. And I think that's a real possibility out of the project of making time for one another, which seems absolutely. to be the core of your answer.
3: You remember that part two of Coltrane's Love Supreme's resolution. That's right. We resolve ourselves, tied to the pursuance. We no. res- resolve ourselves nothing will get in the way of our love of each other.
1: Yes. Thank you, Francis. from a Brent.
3: people whose child could have been born in Virginia and got sold to Houston, Texas. Yeah. Never forgot about that precious little black baby. And as soon as you get free, you got to walk from Virginia to Texas, you're going to get that precious little girl. That's oh, right. Resolve that nothing will get in the way of the love that we have for the people.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
3: And and whatever it takes, we gotta be improvisation, gotta be flexible, prudent, the protein and so forth, but whatever it takes, and I think that's part again of, of the great tradition that we started this dialogue. With. Absolutely. So very much so, very much so. But sister Maya, you have teased out of us things that haven't flowed. <laughs> I've been knowing this brother for 30, 30, 30 years. years. Wow.
1: I've been waiting my life to be in conversations like these. so I'm, I'm hoping I came prepared. I'm pleased to talk to you and grateful for your empathy and your patience and the time you're given to us. Um, I think it transitions into this question of how we raise our Black children. I haven't been a child for a long time, but I was raised by... Black people who love black people um, and Mm -hmm. uh, who care for our souls and our intellects. Mm -hmm. And there is a question here about how we raise our black children. So from William or Aureliana, it's how I feel raising my black children. How do we negotiate our own radicalized trauma while trying to give enough sunscreen for our children to not get burnt in the white streets?
0: Mm.
2: Wow. Yeah. You know, there's this wonderful line, and there's this wonderful moment in the Uses of the Blues, uh, where Jimmy rejects a certain description of the Negro problem. Right? He says, "I don't know what people mean by the Negro problem." Right? But what we mean by the Negro problem is that we got to try to keep whatever this world is saying about our children from taking root into in them. Trying to keep whatever the world is saying about them from taking root in their spirits, in their souls yeah those thousand cuts daily right now the interesting thing about it is that you know but we have to be honest with ourselves i have to be honest with with myself that my own trauma my own wounds showed up and how i tried to raise my baby Mm -hmm. right because you bring you know there's generational baggage you bring it to the to the moment all you know you love the best way you can
3: that's right
2: as fault as 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 vulnerable and 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 full of fault as it may be you love the best way you can and it seems to me that to fortify them in that love that you no know, as as crazy as he may be as 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 um as broken as he seems that negro loves me to death yeah mm-hmm. and if they can come out of there because you know if they can come out of that with that sense of Love that may have the armor because that black love is something else. They have the armor to, to deal with the world. But we gotta keep it from ta- we gotta keep the world from taking ro- that the detritus of the world from taking root, from settling in their spirits. Yeah, and that's an ongoing battle. Does that make sense?
3: Oh, that's 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 so powerful, though, brother. It's so true. You know, one of the great moments in the fire next time is in the letter uh, to the nephew. Yeah. When Baldwin says, don't comma, be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> don't comma. Be afraid. It's like yes, rally. Every market <laughs> rally, where they at? black person said, the Negro is not afraid. That's right. Out of Martin Luther King Jr. used to say what? I'd rather be dead than afraid. So I tell my son, my dear brother Cliff, and my sisters and my daughter Zaytun, two little precious ones. I say, you are so precious and priceless that the world might not understand that. But don't you ever be afraid to take a stand for something right, mm-hmm. for the best of who you are. The best of what's in your mama and your dad and your grandparents. The best now. I ain't talking about the worst. I got a lot of, of gangsta in me. Don't stand for my gangster side. Hold no, no. no, on. Like Tupac. Hold off my thuggy side. Keep that loving side. That's what you stand for. Don't be afraid. Don't you ever sell out. Don't you ever cave in. Don't you ever give up. And that's exactly what Brother Eddie and Winnie done with Langston. I huh. believe Brown he steals himself he ain't afraid you see what I mean and it's part of the family the community the the, the collegiality that he has and it cuts as we know across color because you know we got we got close brothers and sisters who love us close, p- close partners yeah who are as vanilla as a stereotypical Norwegian <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: they, they keep the love
3: flowing it's real yeah, is same is true with yeah. Brown. W. Carrasco, same is <laughs> true with, with, with indigenous peoples and so forth and so on. You see, that's the caravan of I love the island brothers were try trying to tell us about.
2: Doc, doc, there's this line, just really quickly. I know there's this line, of, going back to the letter to my nephew. You, I just reached back and grabbed it because you, wow. you said... Oh, you got it right there. You got it right yeah, there. He said. You get closer. Let me said, get closer here, man. <laughs> he said, to be loved, baby. Yeah. Hard, hard. And once and forever. To strengthen you against the loveless world. Yeah. That's what Seth says to Paul D. Either you love right, your love is too hard. No, 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 no. Uh-huh. Then he says, remember that. I know how black it looks today for you. It looked black that day too. Yes, we were trembling. We have not stopped trembling yet. But if we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we love you. And for the sake of your children and your children's children. That's that's what we're talking about. Ooh, right that's
3: now. what we're talking about. And see, Tony, Tony just takes it off with that thick love she's talking about and being exactly yeah, that. <laughs> love to thick, yeah. like love. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and keep in mind, this is not love of blackness in the abstract. Mm-hmm. This is love of black people individually, the ones who will cuss you out, the ones who will tell you all. They're worthy of being loved. You don't love them because they, you want them to love you back because there's no popularity contest. That's Every right. black person who falls in deep, profound love of black people has been partly crucified by black people. That's right. Everyone. That's
2: right. Adam.
3: Malcolm to Martin, to Marcus, to Fannie Lou, to Ella Baker, to Harriet Tubman. But they kept loving anyway because their love was that thick kind of love. It wasn't this manby-pamby, queer, pro quo. I help you, you help me. You love me, I love you. Can you imagine what our music would have sound like if that's what they were saying about? Right, right. Oh, Lord, have mm-hmm. mercy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank you for that uh, robust and joyful answer. Joyous, joyous answer to this question um, that gets back to this. Uh, or that's a, a part of the idea of forgiveness, right? Like James Baldwin was, um, he, he had hated his father for reasons that people hate their parents. And then he chose to let go of that um, because of something you point out in the in the book, Dr. Glowder, you say uh, without the, what is it? Is it the developing? Okay. Well, anyway, he had let go of the, um, of the hatreds because he needed to. Um, mm. but also because what we're afraid of when we let go of a crutch is that we'll feel pain, right? So right. what you've given mm-hmm. your children is the ability to to feel the pain and move through it and then accept their parents as real fallible human beings who deserve that thick kind of love. That's yeah. what we give to ourselves. Um, and I think the gift of of having a parent who is an adult while you are an adult um, so that we can learn then to parent those of us who, who choose to. Uh, thank you for that pivot. And I think one more, one more big question. Sure, in sure, sure, sure. All right. What do you, this is from Nissan Searless. What do you think Baldwin would have to offer Black liberation organizers who are facing a deeply militarized police department and a resurgence of proud white supremacist violence?
2: Hmm. Well, that's a really that's an interesting question. And I wouldn't dare try to to suggest that I would be able to 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 anticipate Baldwin's words in this moment. I would just you know direct you to the to to to, to the wreckage mm-hmm. to search to search within his corpus because I think he has language for us to speak to the moment. And, you know, he he said, they asked him this question in Esquire in 1968. And he said, I know, they said, well, what would you say to the folk who are out in the street? Uh, he, He said, well, you know, I wouldn't tell them not to get their guns. I wouldn't tell them, and I paraphrase, I wouldn't tell them not to fight and to defend themselves. And I would say to him, and I'm paraphrasing here: If you're gonna, if you're gonna blow, if you're gonna kill that white man, if you're gonna blow his brains out, if you're gonna shoot him, which it may come to, he said, "Don't hate him, because the hatred will corrode the soul." You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because at the heart, at the heart of Jimmy's project, it seems to me, is a moral concern about who who do we take ourselves to be, who do we aspire to be, right? how do we not allow the ugliness of the world to to deform and disfigure right the soul right as we engage in this arduous task of self creation right under these captive conditions so what would he say fight fight to your last breath because that's what he said but don't but do it in the name of love not not in the name of hate that's right. That's right.
3: Doc. Oh, that's, that's, that's eloquence. That's wisdom speaking, my brother. That's wisdom speaking. And we could say, even though we should never speak for Brother Baldwin, that when he went to the heart of American apartheid, U.S. neo-slavery, terror, and terrorism, and trauma, called Jim Crow and Jane Crow, that's what he was up against. He got off that plane and that bus and he walked into this militarized zone. Uh-huh. and various vicious attacks and what have you. And what he, first thing I think he, he accents is, how is it that black folk are able to keep their souls intact? Mm. See, that's a moral and a spiritual question. They didn't have a lot of political power. They didn't have a lot of economic power. They had a richness. They had a depth. They had a tremendous uh, 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 breadth of, of something cultural and moral and spiritual that actually made them morally superior than the white supremacists. Not because they were born that way, because the tradition under tremendous blood, sweat, and tears had produced them in that way. And that blew his mind, because he, he used to Harlem. And you know, the, the black version of urbanicity in, in Harlem is different than the black version of rural, rural Mississippi. We all, real. Had, we all knew world Africans, but we got different circumstances. Mm-hmm. The, the speed of walking and a whole lot of other things is going on there, you see. And so uh, it blew his mind to encounter such a great people spiritually and morally under those kind of militarized conditions. That's the standards we have to keep as we move into the 21st century. And it's a very difficult standard because we've experienced you know, strong moral decline. in in black America because of the commodification and commercialization that Maya was talking about, and because the white supremacy so easily gets inside of us that we don't extricate it, as it were. But as long as we try to deniggerize ourselves in the name of love, where whiteness or white people are not the point of reference, if you so obsessed with hating white folk, they still your point of reference. Yes. You're in a world of trouble. You in a world of trouble. You still captive, you still trapped. Now if you're loving white folk and not having black folk, you sick, you're pathological.
0: <laughs>
3: it's true. <laughs> and pathology, you know, is 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 out there in real talk. A number of different ways, you see. That's it's what true. it is to denigarize yourself by means of access to tradition. That's what our churches ought to be doing. That's what our, our mosque ought to be doing. That's what our synagogues ought to be doing. That's what our poets at that height do. That's what our musicians at their height do. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Come get this love. So you never get niggerized in such a way that you forget that you're part of a great tradition.
1: Yeah. Yes. So let us let us end there. I'm going to bring up the name of a great poet, uh, Jericho Brown, who wrote a book called The Tradition, directly in response, I believe, to Doctor to Mister James Baldwin, who said, "Let's begin in love and end there." Mm. Um, that is the last question here uh you spoke about verb as a praxis, or uh, uh and to, and we've just spoken to the notion of radical love and what it looks like and how it has shaped this movement we begin in love and we end there so thank you both so much for coming to speak with us thank you all for uh attending this this haymarket reading and i hope that we'll see you at the next one
2: Thank you, thank, thank you. you, sister. Maya. Love you, God. Thank you, and thank brother, you, Maya. brother Eddie, man, brother Eddie.
3: <laughs> Lord have mercy! What a love warrior you are at the deepest level, man. And we're gonna be faithful unto death. We made a covenant. We're gonna go down swinging. Oh, we're always. gonna go down I'll go down before him, but I'll go down with a smile on my face because I know the tradition <laughs> continue on.
2: <laughs> I love you to death, brother. Oh,
1: How my God. Love you to death, my brother. Thank you both. Be so
0: well. Thanks. Take a trip. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.